I'll invite you to turn with me now to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. We're going to pick things up in verse 8, and we'll read through to the end of chapter 12. Uh, We have in our text today an account of a rather serious sin that is committed by a man of God, by a man who clearly possesses faith. And when we come across these stories in the Bible, it can be a little bit discouraging at times to see God's people committing sometimes very grievous sins. But I think we have in our text today, we have that, but we also have, I think, something encouraging to focus on. So uh, let's begin by just reading, starting in verse 8, where we left off last time through to the end of chapter 12. So Genesis 12, verse 8. From there... Talking of Abram, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The Bible doesn't hide from us the fact that many of the significant characters in it, the good guys even, are sinners. Even very celebrated men and women we find to be very great sinners as well. We think of uh, men like Noah. We've already seen Noah and at least one account of his sinfulness. We think of David, a man whom we're told is a man after God's own heart. And yet there's some rather significant and serious sins that we see in his life. We can think of Peter denying the Lord. And then even later... Uh, having to be corrected by Paul because of his confusion about the gospel and appropriate actions in light of the gospel. We think of Paul, certainly prior to his conversion at least, a tremendously great sinner, and he had an understanding that he was the chief of sinner, that he was very clear on that. And of course, Abram, here as well. All of these men and more, all of the ones that we find in Scripture, were indeed sinners. This text Reminds us of that. It makes it very clear. It can be perhaps at times a little bit uncomfortable to read these things. And yet, as with other accounts where we find this, 
This also serves to shine the spotlight on the faithfulness of God. Abram acts in this text very unfaithfully, but God remains faithful to what he has decreed and promised. Abram is unfaithful. God is faithful. God had made a promise to send his son to save man from their sins. And he had promised Abram that this would be a son that would come through his line. It would be the eternal son of God, but according to the flesh, this would be a son of Abraham. And now, as we get further into the story, we've only just heard this promise at the beginning of chapter 12, at least the promise as it is made to Abram. And now, Abram would seem to put this plan in jeopardy. And yet, God remains faithful. God made a promise, and God will keep that promise. And he will do this even despite Abram's actions. There's a tremendous, I think, a tremendous amount of hope and encouragement that is here for the Christian, particularly if you are feeling weighed down and beaten down on account of your sin. If you wonder at times if you will make it to the end, if you question because of that sin that you still see in your heart, if you question whether you forfeited your inheritance and that is a bother to your soul, I think if we are being honest, if you understand the demands of God's law, that it calls for perfection in you, perfect obedience in thought, word, and deed, if you understand that that is what God's law demands of man, then at some point you have had this question arise in you. I don't think there is a Christian alive who hasn't felt that sting of accusation that perhaps you're beyond hope. Now you've done it. You've done it yet again. There's no hope for you left. That sting of accusation that you're outside of Christ now because of your sins. You did this again. You can't possibly be a Christian. Where you feel the weight of that. Think, would a Christian, could a Christian really, if they have the Spirit of God in them, have done this kind of a sin or this many sins or whatever it might be? I think if we're honest, we've all experienced that in some degree. And I know for some it happens regularly and to a very strong degree. And our text reminds us of good news. Good news about God's promises and his faithfulness. We see here that not even the sin of God's servants will stop God from his saving plan. We expect Godless men, we expect Satan to rage against God and against God's plans. But God's own people are sometimes found to be in the way as well of God's intended purpose, seemingly at times working against it. And yet, even so, God's purposes will stand. Nothing will thwart God's ultimate plans to save a people in and through his son, Jesus Christ. His big picture plan will stand, but also, furthermore, nothing will thwart God's plan to save the individuals whom he has chosen to save. We might easily acknowledge, well, of course, God's 
ultimate plans for the universe are going to come to pass. But we might sometimes wonder where we fit into all of that and if we'll be on the right side of it. But not even the sin of God's own servants will stop God from his saving plan. And so I want to get into this as we look through this text. And the first thing that I think is obvious here in our passage, and yet something that we need to be sure that we grasp, is that true worshipers still sin. True worshipers still sin. There's no question there shouldn't be any question that Abram is a true worshiper of the Lord, that he believes God and that he truly worships, worships him rightly. We can easily, you know, see somebody blow it big time and, and maybe account that as, well, they're not really a Christian or they don't really trust or they don't really worship the Lord. But that's not, we can't say that of Abram. There's no doubt he was a true worshiper. He was the quintessential Old Testament man of faith. That's what Paul calls him in Galatians 3. He was justified by faith, and that saving faith is evident in the fruit that this man bore in his obedient life overall. We can see the evidence of his faith, and we talked about that last week. But we also see evidence of Abram as a true worshiper, even in the passage that we read here as well. So let's just note a bit of that. Uh, beginning in verse 8 again, it says, From there he moved, so that's from Shechem, to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So he moved from Shechem. Now he's, he's, remember, he's come from the north. He's moving south to Shechem, and now this is even further south. Uh, in between Ai and Bethel. So this is just north of Jerusalem. And there he builds an altar, we're told, and he called upon the name of the Lord. If you remember back in chapter 4, verse 26, after the birth of Seth, we are told that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. We could see that as shorthand, for they began to worship him and all that that would entail. Now, that phrase, to call upon the name of the Lord, is not uncommon it certainly, I think, reveals something important about what it means to be somebody who trusts the Lord and who is uh, uh, worshiping him. It involves calling upon him, calling out to him. It expresses ongoing dependence upon and prayer to the Lord. This is a, a mark of one who truly believes and, and worships God. In Acts chapter 2, it is those who call upon the name of the Lord who we're told will be saved. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, Paul defines Christians as those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Abram is clearly a true worshiper of God. He depends on God. He builds altars to God. He sacrifices to God. He calls upon the name of the Lord, not his idols. He's forsaken them and he worships the Lord. We also see evidence in these verses of Abram as a true worshiper of God in this pilgrimage that he is on. If you remember, the Lord had called him out of Ur and again out of Haran to leave and to go into the land that he would show him. And then he, he made a promise that he would give him ultimately the land of Canaan to his descendants. But right now, at this point, he hasn't received that land. He's still sojourning. He's still wandering. 
And first here in verse 8, he lands between Bethel and Ai. And then in verse 9, he moves further south yet into the Negev. This is uh, the southern part of Canaan, kind of a dry, arid land. This uh, would become part of Simeon's inheritance and later kind of swallowed up by Judah. But Abram's sojourning is part of the evidence of his faith, a true faith. He has gone out as the Lord had told him to, despite not possessing yet any land in Canaan. Again, he's a true worshiper. He's a man of faith. And then in verse 10, we read, Now there was a famine in the land. And so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So as he is wandering in Canaan, this famine that we're told is severe arises. Now, that's a significant problem for anybody if there's a severe famine in the land. I think it's maybe even more of a problem, though, if you don't actually own any of the land and you're really a guest in their land and you have hundreds of people that are with you and you're responsible for their mouths and you're living off of someone else's land. uh, You're sort of something of a leech maybe at that point might seem like it. So there's a severe famine This in itself would be a trial to Abram's faith, but we can also see it as a trial in another way. This is the land that he has been promised, the Lord has said. And now there is this severe famine. And you can easily see, I mean, you could see him wondering what good this land is. Why do I want this land? There's nothing here. It's dry. There's a famine here. There's nothing to eat. This is not at this stage, not at this point, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It's dry, arid. There's severe famine. So you can see how one might question the appeal of this land in this moment and what God has promised to him. Some people think that Abram going down to Egypt is something he should never have entertained, that he should have just trusted the Lord in Canaan and stuck it out there. Others think that it was providential, that he was as close as he was to Egypt, a land that would be watered by the Nile and not simply dependent on the rainfall. And I would submit that there is perhaps further evidence of his faith, even as he goes down into Egypt. Uh, Matthew Henry in his commentary points out that to Abram's credit, he didn't give up on his sojourn altogether here and head back to where he came from. So again, with this land that's maybe not all that appealing anymore and where am I going to go? What do I do here now? One option could have been to return to Haran or, or to Ur. Ur was located on the Euphrates River as well, likely not experiencing famine to the same degree. Maybe I'll just give up on this whole enterprise. It's a little nuts anyways and just return. But this is, is not, of course, what he does. And so in these things we see, even so, even still, Abram is a worshiper of God. He is a man who possesses faith. But as I said, true worshipers still sin, and sometimes in big ways. And as they enter into Egypt, he concocts this faithless plan. So verse 11 says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. 
Now, there's some question about what precisely is motivating Abram in this moment. It could simply be that he's just simply concerned for self-preservation. He's, this fear of man overcomes him. He's convinced they're going to kill him because, because of her beauty to take her. And this is really what's driving him, just self-preservation. And it could be, I just, I don't want to die. And so therefore, out of this being driven by this fear of man and this fear of death, he makes this plan that's going to subject his wife to dishonor, himself to dishonor, and put her in a horrible position and put her in risk of adultery just in order to preserve his life. But it's possible there may also be some understanding that his life needs preservation because of what God has promised to him and his descendants. They're going to kill me, but I've got to stay alive because this is going to be better for us all. After all, the Lord has said what he has said to me and made this promise to me. Of course, that would not, if that is part of Abram's motive, that would not in any way excuse what he is doing. But regardless, this is a repugnant plan. Sarai is his wife. And as we will see very clearly, she is the one through whom this offspring is to come. This line of promise is to continue. So to put her in this situation, to possibly end up bearing children for another man, seems, humanly speaking at least, to jeopardize God's plan and intention. Moreover, even if God hadn't made this plan or this, this promise to Abram, this would still be a, a, a great violation of his covenant marriage with his wife. And indeed, Pharaoh does end up snatching her up. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So it would seem, in this situation, Abram did not call upon the Lord for wisdom, for help, and for protection. Rather than trusting the Lord to help him if the Egyptians do come for his life, rather, he makes up this awful plan and subjects his wife to this treatment. He engages in deception and then he just stands by as they come, take his wife to be with Pharaoh, to take her into Pharaoh's house, presumably to become his wife. Additionally, Abram is enriched because of this. Pharaoh thinks that this is her brother who has given permission for her to be with Pharaoh and he is pleased with this and sends him all kinds of stuff and people and animals and enriches Abram. That's just more, more than just a little bit shady or ill-gotten gain. And we're not told how long this arrangement stayed as it did. The details here are, are relatively few. It's possible she became part of Pharaoh's harem and was not yet formally made a wife of his. It doesn't explicitly say that adultery was committed here. It doesn't explicitly say that it was avoided either. Uh, But when we get into chapter 20, 
we're going to see a similar situation occur. And yes, this is going to happen again. There it's with a different man, Abimelech. It's the same plan. And Abimelech takes her. But there we find out very explicitly that the Lord kept Abimelech from touching her. And it may well be implied the very same thing here, that Sarai is ultimately spared from actually having committed adultery. So we see here again this reality that true worshipers still sin. And the focus here is on Abram's actions and Abram's sin. Abram was a man of faith, but he surely didn't act in faith in this instant. And notice, too, it's not simply a a passing moment of weakness that just kind of it was so much happening really quickly and he just reacted badly in in a situation. He makes the plan and then they go into Egypt and then they execute the plan and he stands by while she's taken and he doesn't object to this or say anything. And then he receives the gifts in return for it. There's a period of time over which this sin is being played out. And he puts his wife in this position of possibly conceiving by another. And in a redemptive plan that God has brought Abram into, a plan that involves a particular offspring in a particular family line, Abram is acting contrary to that in this plan. Again, humanly speaking, seeming to put the thing at risk, the plan at risk. Again, we, we expect unbelievers to rage against God's plans. But here, even Abram, perhaps somewhat unwittingly, though he should know better, acts against it. We see men of faith sin, again, all throughout the Bible. We've, been just, we've just come through a study of Samson, and that's fairly glaring, as we have noted, in his life. And in the life of some of the other judges and some of the other people that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. We think again, I mentioned David. Think of all of the 12 disciples. If you read the book of Mark, they don't look particularly sharp a lot of the time. The reality is Christians are not going to be sinless. Now, this does not excuse our sin. I understand that. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it right. It's not, well, that's just... Sin all the more because it's going to happen anyways and let grace abound. That's not the attitude we take from it. But the reality is sanctification is not completed in this lifetime. If we see sin in the life of these great men and women of the Bible, we must come to grips with the fact that there will be sin in our lives as we carry on. When Matthew Henry was reflecting on this section, here's what he writes. He says, the grace Abraham was most eminent for was faith. Meaning that the thing that we think of when we think of Abram is his great faith. He takes God's promise and he just leaves everything and goes. And he's commended for his faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And again, in Romans chapter 4, his faith is is highlighted there. He's eminent. He's a man of faith. The grace Abraham was most eminent for was faith, and yet he thus fell through unbelief and distrust of the divine providence. 
even after God had appeared to him twice. He says, this is a, a man of tremendous faith. God has appeared to him twice. And even so, he falls through this act of unbelief and faithlessness. And Henry says, alas, he says, what will become of the willows when the cedars are thus shaken? In other words, words if Abram can do something so sinful, this man who possessed such a tremendous grace of faith, what will become of men with lesser gifts and graces than Abram? If this is what happens to the cedars, what of us who are willows? Sometimes God's own redeemed children do find that they are working against God's plans, what he has revealed. Think of, uh, again, Peter, uh, when he is, Jesus is predicting his death, and, G- and Peter, nobly it would seem, uh, intervenes and says that'll never happen. And we, and, and we shouldn't think of Peter here as not a believer at this point. He, he absolutely is a believer. He confessed Jesus as the Christ. Jesus said that the Father had revealed this to him. He says, no, they're not going to do that. And what's Jesus' response to him? Get behind me, Satan, he says. Peter would stop the cross from occurring. He's inadvertently working against the plan that God has. Not everything that believers do is contributing positively to God's desires for the world. This is not terribly encouraging on the one hand, but at the same time, we do ourselves no benefit if we look away from this. We don't do ourselves any favors if we don't acknowledge this or if we deny it. This ought to cause humility to arise in us, a lowliness of spirit and a spirit of supplication to the Lord. That we would cry out to God for help, knowing that we are of like substance with men like Abraham, with men like Peter, and even lesser beings in so many ways, lesser gifts and graces and some of these great heroes of the faith. And so if they could fall and they could sin in great ways, we are quite capable of that as well. And so we are continually in the need for the Lord's help. If we don't understand, if we don't grasp this. Now, again, sometimes we, we know, we know there's going to be sin in the lives of Christians. And if we're talking about other people and someone else was struggling, we'd say, look, you know, yes, you've sinned. It's not right, but you need to trust the Lord. And with other people, we can, we can deal with it well and we can give them good advice to trust that the Lord has died for them and so on. But then when it comes to ourselves, sometimes We can become where we think, well, I somehow should be above this. I shouldn't still have sin in my life. And I've I've talked to many people who who have taken this approach hard on themselves in a way they wouldn't be with others. As if there shouldn't be any sin still in you. Sin will come. But knowing this reality that sin is going to be present and then experiencing it. There can be a temptation for one who has a tender conscience to think that this will be my ruin. There's temptation to think that this means there is no grace for me if this sin remains. 
if I'm still struggling with this. God must have forsaken me. He's going to leave me to rot in my sin. These kinds of thoughts have crippled many people, robbed believers of, of much joy. They are some of the most tortuous, torturous experiences that God's people can have. That thought that I'm done in, that God has abandoned me to my sin. So let's turn now to the faithfulness of God. True worshipers still sin, but second point, God remains faithful. Let's look look at verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Despite Abram's sin, God acts on his behalf here. And interestingly, God chastised Pharaoh. Though Pharaoh acted in ignorance here about Sarai's marital status at least, we're told the Lord sent great plagues, great plagues upon him. We're not told exactly how Pharaoh connected the dots that this was related to Abram and Sarai and that Sarai was in fact his wife, but somehow that much was made clear to him. God had a plan here and he was not going to let Abram's sin or Pharaoh's ignorance ruin anything. He was not going to be thwarted. We see God's grace to Abram here in a number of ways. If you remember from last week, God promised to curse those who would dishonor Abram. And that's displayed here. Again, he acts ignorantly, but this would be a dishonoring to Abram. And the Lord sends plagues upon Pharaoh. They're cursed with those plagues on account of Sarai and Abram. Furthermore, Abram is enriched by Pharaoh and sent away, really, rather respectfully by Pharaoh, who doesn't demand that he returns everything. It says he sent him on his way with all of his stuff. He seems to even have this a bit of a fear, which would be understandable if he's received plagues and it's on account of these uh, two individuals. But he sends them away with all that they've acquired there. Again, the blessing to Abram here depends not upon his upright conduct, but upon God's grace. Did Abram deserve to leave Egypt an enriched man after what he has done? And we say, of course not. Of course not. God's dealing with him graciously here. The chastisement that comes to Abram doesn't come directly from God in these verses, but rather it comes through Pharaoh's lips. What is this you have done to me? Pharaoh asks. Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? And then Pharaoh goes on to expel him from the land, to kick him out. I think it's remarkable that a pagan such as Pharaoh becomes the means of rebuke for the great Abraham, the man of faith. Again, I think this is a, a, something that we should consider 
that ought to create some measure of humility in us before the unbelieving world. Being a believer doesn't automatically mean that we are always in the right about everything we might do or everything we might say. There may be times where the unbeliever is right and we are wrong. We may need rebuke. Not every opposition that comes from others who are not Christians is necessarily persecution. Now, I'll just say there are some professing Christians who always seem to side with the world against Christians. And they act as if every beef the world has with Christians or with the church is somehow legitimate. And that's simply not true. But clearly, it can be the case where an unbeliever is the means of a legitimate rebuke to believers. And I think we ought to understand this as somewhat to our shame, that Abram would be rebuked by this pagan king when he ought to have understood what the right thing to do here was and what would be honoring to the Lord. So what we see here is God's faithfulness, and it is his faithfulness despite Abram's sin. God had made a gracious promise to Abram, and God intended to keep it. There was an offspring that was to to descend through Abram and Sarai, and not even Abram's sin would stop this from happening. This ultimate plan to send the eternal Son of God to be born of an offspring of Abram would not be thwarted by Abram, nor by Sarai, nor by Pharaoh, nor by anyone else. In fact, it is man's sin that is the whole reason why this individual is coming. And we do see all kinds of opposition to what God is doing. We see unintentional opposition from God's own people at times, like in this text. We see Satan and the nations raging against the Lord, directly trying to oppose God. In the Gospels, we see Jesus is opposed continually by those he identifies as the children of Satan, the Pharisees. John 8, he calls them that. And ultimately, he is crucified, he is nailed to the cross by the hands of these godless, lawless men. They do this in opposition to God. They do this because they despise God and his righteousness ultimately. And yet, even in and through that sinful act, that becomes the very means by which Christ would propitiate the wrath of God for sinners. Even as they are raging against God, they're fulfilling ultimately his purposes. When we get to the book of Revelation, we see all kinds of wicked forces arraying against the Son of God and against the church. And yet we see that God is nevertheless at work. He is moving things along, even in and through those who would rage against him, moving history along to its appointed end when the glorious Son of God will return to judge the world and bring to completion the salvation of his own people. And so as we think about God's big plan, his macro purposes for the universe, to save a people from their sins, We know that nothing is going to come in the way of this. Nothing will stop it. But as I said at the start, we might say, well, I have no problem affirming that. I agree most assuredly 
That nothing is going to stop God from doing what he's going to do in the big picture of things. That Christ will return one day, new creation, and it will be glorious. There's no question. I believe that to be true. But we might easily begin to wonder about where we will stand when all of that goes down. Which side of that will I be on? Will I be brought safely through into eternity and into the new creation? Or won't my... Sin, keep me from it. My ongoing battle with it, leave me on the outside of it. But we see in this text, not only God's faithfulness to the big picture plan to send his son through an offspring of Abraham and not have that polluted by Pharaoh or any other, but we see God's faithfulness on an individual level as well to the man Abram and to his wife Sarai. This is no small sin that he commits here. If he could have forfeited his salvation here, he would have. This is a sustained sin. There would be other sins that are involved in this. How many warnings and conscience pangs did he have to blow through in order to proceed with this plan? But we see God committed here to Abram. And to his sanctification and to his salvation. The Savior would come through Abram's line and he holds a special place in the history of redemption. But Abram himself is kept by God. And this rebuke he receives from Pharaoh and being expelled from this land is the means by which God turns him around and sends him back to Canaan. As we see in chapter 13 verse 1. God is not just committed to this big plan of redemption in broad strokes, the big picture. But he is also committed to the eternal salvation of his elect. He will keep those whom he saves. Christ will raise up those whom the Father has given to him on the last day. Christ has most assuredly satisfied God's wrath For their sins. And nothing, Jesus says in John 6, can snatch us out of his hand. This is illustrated in Abram's life. And we see it very explicitly taught to us in the New Testament. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What is that work? In another place, The Spirit, through Paul, writes, 1 Corinthians 1.8, As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God will finish the work he begins in his people. He calls us to faith now, to believe in him now, And he's committed to sanctifying us and seeing us through to the end and completing that work at the day of Christ Jesus. That phrase, that language is continually used in these verses we're reading here. At the day of Christ Jesus, at the coming of our Lord. That's when we will be established in perfection and glory. Pure, unblemished, guiltless. God will do this. 
Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn, sorry, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice there, God doesn't just predestine people to make a profession of faith. It says he predestines us to be conformed into the image of Christ, his son. And to ultimately glorify us. Those whom he predestined, he also called. That is, called to faith, to believe. And those whom he called, he justified by his grace through faith. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He's speaking of all of this as having been accomplished. It's all past tense. He glorified because in the eternity of God, it's as good as done. This is what God does. It's his work. And all things must work together for that end goal. This is what it's saying. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All of it. Whatever you're facing, whatever the trial, whatever the difficulty, whatever the battle you're enduring, the physical battle, the emotional struggle, the difficulty with whatever, all of it's got to work towards this end goal that God is sanctifying his children and he's keeping you and one day he's going to glorify you. All of it works together for that end. It has to be. This is what God does. God will accomplish this. I want to read one other verse, Colossians 1. It's a couple of verses, beginning in verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to, so this is the purpose now of that reconciliation. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's why he has reconciled you. That's part of what he's doing here. That's the goal. That's the end. But then it adds, verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. What is this condition that is stated here? It's continued belief. In the hope of the gospel that you heard. As a Christian, if you begin to wonder about your sins because they are many, because you've been at this for so many years and you continue to sin, you fear that God might just leave you on the outside because of this. And maybe he has forsaken me and left me. I would urge you to remember the whole message of the gospel in the first place, that God saves sinners, that he justifies the ungodly, not because of their works, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When your conscience is screaming at you and the law of God condemns you, continue in the hope of the gospel, that Jesus died for sinners, that my sin once more proves that I am in need of his grace. 
That I'm in need of his righteousness to be credited to mine because evidently I don't have any of my own. The hope is that God justifies ungodly sinners like me. And though my sins are great, I have nowhere else to go. I stake my claim here and trust that God will bring me safely through, though this looks like a mess today and I don't know what's coming tomorrow. There are times I've talked with people struggling, feeling like they've, they don't have an assurance of their salvation because of their sin. And they're very upset about it and worried about it. And I say to them, well, then, do you want to just pack it all in and just abandon the Lord altogether? And they look at me mortified. They say, are you nuts? This is, I never perish the thought. I say, exactly, exactly. That is your only hope that you're confessing that right now. You know, you have nowhere to turn. Even in this low moment, we say with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go in John 6? All these people who've professed faith in Christ, they're, oh, this is a hard teaching. I'm out of here now. We just wanted our bellies full. I don't know about this eating his flesh and drinking his blood. We're out. And Jesus says, you want to go to? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is it. This is all I have. I have nowhere to go. There's lots I don't understand. There's lots I look at inside of me that I do not like, but I have nowhere to go. This is where my hope lies. And if this is your confession, no hope but Christ, then have confidence that God will not cast you off. He is faithful. Yes, yes, your sins are grievous. No, you are not excused for them. Yes, the consequences of those sins may likewise be grievous. And God's disciplining hand might be heavy upon you. But take it on faith that he disciplines those he loves for our good. And where Hebrews tells us that in Hebrews 12, it says that we might share his holiness. That's very similar to all things must work together for good. His hand is heavy. His discipline hurts. But I trust he's doing this ultimately to sanctify me. I just want to make clear I'm talking to those of tender conscience here, to those whose consciences are operating and have a sense of their sinfulness. If you are simply calloused about your sins, if you just want a ticket punched to heaven, so you therefore like the idea that your sins won't stop God from saving you, and therefore you're just going to keep running headlong into those sins without any kind of repentance or acknowledgement really of those sins, then you, have no, you should have no confidence that you have a true saving knowledge of Christ. No true grasp of God's holiness and of your utter sinfulness before him. I'm speaking to those who feel their weakness, the weight of their sin, something of the holiness of God. And who sometimes wonder then about your plight. See the faithfulness of God. His faithfulness on display to Abram and to Sarai. 
He is committed to the sanctification and ultimately to the glorification of his people. Though in this life, the battle with our flesh, the battle with sin will indeed remain. Again, as we looked at Wednesday, if you were here, his strength is made perfect in weakness. If your sole hope is in Christ and in his power to save sinners, if that is where your hope lies, then you have reason to have confidence that you have peace with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we have examples in your word of sinners, of your people committing sins. Father, it's not because what they did is good. It's not to say that our sins or my sins are okay. But it reminds us afresh and again, over and over again, that ultimately the blessing of salvation is dependent ultimately upon your grace. That your people make it to the finish line and will stand guiltless in the day of Christ Jesus because of your saving power and your faithfulness ultimately. Father, I pray that you'd encourage us with these things. That this would strengthen us. And Father, that this reminder of your grace would, as your scriptures say, train us to renounce ungodliness further. Father, not under some constant weight of heaviness, but out of thankfulness that we stand as your children by your grace. Out of confidence that you will be faithful. God, you are good to us. We praise you and thank you for that. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.